Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That the words of Jesus, that the story he tells would have its full effect on us. That we wouldn't be people of religiosity, but we would be people of compassion. Transform us visually, transform us as a community. After the image of our Savior. Amen. 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 Well, good to see you this morning, brothers and sisters. I wanted to start out this morning by telling you about a movie I saw a few weeks ago. I was watching um, the movie Puss in Boots with my kids, which is a spin-off of the Shrek movies. And I, I'd seen it years back, but I, I forgot how hilarious it is. <laughs> And the hero of this movie is this swashbuckling Latino cat <laughs> who's just a little bit quicker and a little bit more clever than, uh, than any of the villains. And it's played, he's played by Antonio Banderas. I actually have a picture here for you. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Look at there. There's the hero right there. All right. Uh, however, as the movie goes on, Puss finally meets his match. And this masked cat arrives on the scene with all the same moves and all the same speed. All right, so I have a picture of this masked hero here, uh, this villain. And this epic battle ensues between Puss and this villain. And the, the masked cat is matching Puss in Boots step for step. But at the end, the mask is, re is removed and the rival is revealed to be not a tomcat at all, but a female, a female cat named Kitty Softpaws. <laughs> all right, so there's, there's Kitty Softpaws, all right. And, uh, and this plot twist where the masked cat is revealed to be female, it's meant to shock us all, right? It's one of the oldest tricks in Hollywood's book, and it's meant to reveal our subconscious biases. Did we really think that only male cats could be quick and clever? Did we really think that only male cats could be formidable heroes or villains? Right? See, our subconscious bias is revealed through this plot twist. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, where is Taylor going with all this? Is there a point, or is he just amusing himself and the children? And that would be partially true. But there is actually a point. Because long before DreamWorks and Hollywood began using plot twists to reveal our hidden biases, Jesus had already perfected that move. His parables often include these unexpected twists, right? So the tax collector goes home justified before God instead of the Pharisee. Or he tells us stories about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one that was lost, right? Or he tells us about the father who receives the prodigal son back and has a party for him instead of sending him away in shame, right? And these, these little twists in Jesus' parable are meant to reveal theology to us in this unexpected way. Like our hearts and our minds sort of think the story is headed this way, but at the twist we realize, oh, wow. According to Jesus, things aren't how they seem to be in the kingdom of God always, right? Now, in our gospel reading today, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have what might be the most 
famous example of all of this technique. And here Jesus tells a story where the likeliest of heroes, the priest and the Levites, are shown to be hard-hearted. Right? They have the wrong priorities in the kingdom of God, according to Jesus. And meanwhile, when all is said and done, and the masks are removed, the only one truly prepared to love his neighbor as himself is the most unlikely hero of all, the Samaritan. Now, to understand this plot twist, we have to know a little bit about the cultural context. Samar Samaritans were this racially mixed group to the north, and they had abandoned worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They had interbred with pagans, and they abandoned the authority of most of the Old Testament. They didn't view it in that way. And so it's, uh, it's with all these things in mind, we need to understand this tension between Jews and Samaritans, why that existed and why Samaritans had almost like a subhuman status among Jews in that day. I mean, nobody in Israel, no righteous person in Israel would have thought that the, the hero in this story was going to be a Samaritan. In fact, even at the end of the lawyer's exchange with Jesus, when the parable forces him to admit that he was wrong, did you notice he still can't seem to bring himself to say the word Samaritan? Right? Jesus is like, you know, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into robbers? And the guy's like, the, uh, the one who had mercy on him. <laughs> it's almost like he can't even stomach the word. And I think if Jesus were telling this story in 21st century America, it might be called the parable of the Shiite Muslim. Or it might be called the parable of the good communist. Or whatever group would be most difficult for you to conceive of demonstrating sacrificial love. So if, a, if there's a people group that sort of causes your stomach to turn a little bit, that's probably in the right ballpark. So for some, the most unlikely hero today might be the straight white male with the Make America Great Again t-shirt. It's like, wow, he's the hero? What a plot twist. Or for an Anglican, Jesus might have called it the parable of the good Episcopalian. So if the idea of such a person doing these acts of mercy makes our stomach turn a bit, that's the whole point. Jesus is teaching that real love is not theoretical because neighbor love is as neighbor love does. Amen? Amen. And I know that this is a very famous passage, so we're tempted to kind of skim past it and think we got this one in hand already. But as I've been freshly meditating on it this week, I found it to be very convicting. <laughs> And so will you turn there with me to Luke 10, 25-37? It's on page 869 of your few Bible. 869. And there's two main points that I want to be sure that we don't miss today. And the first thing is easy to just kind of skim past. And that is that we see in this passage the absolute brilliance of Jesus. That Jesus is a genius. The philosopher Dallas Willard was famous for referring to Jesus as the most intelligent person, person of all, the smartest man who ever lived. And that may sound strange to us, almost like a categorical error, right? To think about Jesus in terms of intelligence or logic. We're accustomed to thinking about Jesus as being like holy, not brilliant. Right? But think about it. If Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God in human flesh then he would have to be the most intelligent human being that ever lived. 
And until you've actually set aside time to read the Gospels for yourself, it's hard to appreciate how very true this is. Because in a passage like this, we see that Jesus is clearly playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers. Jesus perfectly understands the human condition and the motives behind the human heart. Jesus responds to people's testy questions with even more poignant questions. Right? He tells stories that sort of unearth our subconscious theological biases. Look down with me at verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer, an expert in the Mosaic law, stood up to put him to the test. So we see right here, right away, that this person had insincere motives. He wanted to appear to be a seeker, but really what, what he was after was to reveal some sort of defect in Jesus or Jesus' teaching. So he asked Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this was, a, this was actually a very famous, a very common question to ask rabbis in the first century. It was a way of asking, what do you think is at the very center of devotion to God? And Jesus is playing chess already, we see. In verse 20, 26, he says to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So see, he turns the question back on the guy, and in doing this, he actually accomplishes two things at once. First, he shows us that the scriptures, the law of God, is the proper place to look to settle our theological debates. All right, did you notice that? What's written in the law, Jesus asked the guy. And this man, this expert in the law, he seemed to think that Jesus was unorthodox in some sort of way, right? But Jesus dismisses that possibility in one fell swoop, swoop by asking this question. And secondly, in challenging the lawyer to answer his own questions, he shows that the man's problem was not actually a defect in his mind, in his understanding. It was a defect in his heart. Amen? Because technically the man gives the right answer. Right? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And here I can almost picture Jesus kind of dropping the mic <laughs> and like pretending he's going to continue going back about his business as he waits for the guy to get to his actual point. So, oh, you still had stuff to say? Okay. <laughs> And that's what happens in verse 29. It says, The man he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Right? And here we get to the heart of their disagreement. Because Jesus believed that we owe neighbor love to all people, regardless of ethnicity or creed or political affiliation. Jesus believed that the purpose of God in electing Israel was to bless them that they might be a blessing to all nations. Right? That's why God believed, believed, that's why Jesus believed that God chose Israel. But this man had a different understanding. He believed that God's people are only obligated to love God's people. We're only loved to treat as human beings those who look like us, who believe like us. Now, at this point, Jesus could have had a long argument with a guy, quoting all the scriptures, including the book of Ruth that we just went through, that proved his own point, and writing this guy a lengthy email, or posting them on this guy's Facebook page. But he doesn't do that, because Jesus is too smart for that sort of thing. 
Instead, he tells a story to appeal to the guy's own sense of self-preservation, as well as to his common sense. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is. It's not just this sort of quaint story with a good moral, right? It's a rhetorical and theological grenade that's lodged strategically into the human heart, and it's aimed at exploding our selfishness and bad theology from the inside out. And if we fail to see this, it might be because we fail to see the brilliance of Jesus. And perhaps our reluctance to admit this point, that Jesus is actually a lot smarter than us, is part of the reason why we don't trust him in all areas of our life. And as long as we think of Jesus as being holy, but basically an intellectually naive figure, then we relegate his influences to certain areas of our lives, like spiritual areas, right? Like, like prayer. And we tend to think that he has nothing to say to us as businessmen or artists or scholars. And we fool ourselves into thinking things like, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But he couldn't have possibly anticipated how difficult it would be to keep that rule in the realm of modern business. Right? Jesus says if a man looks upon a woman with lustful intent, it's as if he committed adultery. But he couldn't have possibly anticipated all the pitfalls of the internet and billboards and our image-driven culture. You see what I mean? If we take Jesus to be a holy but basically intellectually naive figure then eventually it becomes a barrier to us obeying him as our Lord and trusting him appropriately. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and about the universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real-life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge. Willard continues, And can we seriously imagine that Jesus would be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived. In other words, Jesus is emphatically not naive. When he commands us to love our neighbor, we can be sure that he's not just speaking some sort of like vague, idealistic gas. Right? He's talking about something tangible. And I, to put it in the words of the Deuteronomy 30 reading, it said this, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Right? God is saying to his people in Deuteronomy 30, you're going to make all kinds of excuses for why these commandments, they're just unfair. And we can't be really expected to obey them. And he's like, that's not true. And that's what Jesus is getting at in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So according to Jesus, true neighbor love is tangible and doable. It looks like, what does it look like? 
like dressing people's wounds, like having compassion and then placing them on your own animal, inconveniently walk, having to walk, you know. It, it, it looks like checking them into an inn and taking practical care of them and footing the bill and checking back on them to see that they're all right. And that brings me to the second point, which is that according to Jesus, true religion, true spirituality prizes compassion over ceremony. Look with me at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this was a notoriously dangerous road. I love the way that Bev inhabited that. You know, she does a lot of Bible research. She, it was a notoriously dangerous road actually then as of now. This kind of rocky road, and, and, and there was a lot of bandits that hid out in these stones, and there's this high elevation. <clears throat> and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus continues, showing the failure of the expected heroes in verses 31 and 32. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Hold on, Jesus, you're getting a little bit too close to the... <laughs> All right. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. We can never do that, Jesus. What are you talking about? So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, this seems pretty cold. But there's actually something more at work here than just a failure of compassion. Because ultimately, this story is about misplaced priorities. Because the priest and the Levite, traveling as they were to serve at the temple in Jerusalem, would have remembered that according to the law, touching a dead man would cause one to be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And they couldn't be sure whether this guy was dead or alive, or is he going to die on the way? I don't, I don't want to defile myself, because if I defile myself by helping this guy, I'm not going to be able to do my duty in the temple. Right, so there's an issue with priorities. In the words of the great Bible interpreter William Barclay, to touch him would mean losing their turn of duty in the temple, and they refused to risk that. They set the claims of the ceremonial above those of charity. The temple and its liturgy meant more to them than the pain of man. Now, on the other hand, when our unexpected hero, the Samaritan, sees this man in need, it says that he had compassion. He had compassion, and he did something about it. And how about us? Do we set the claims of the ceremonial over the claims of charity, over the claims of love? And I have to admit, as I was reflecting on this passage this week, it stung a bit. Because I, I have to admit, sometimes I do that. And as I reflected on the life of this church, the life of incarnation, I've had this nagging thought because I want our church to grow in worship and I want us to grow in prayer and in study. But friends, not to the neglect of showing tangible love, tangible neighbor love to the lost, to the least, and to the last. Amen? Amen. I feel like as a community, we need more of these tan kinds of tangible love thy neighbor type ministries in this church. And I do see some signs of hope. For example, for a number of years, we've had a vibrant group of men devoted to prison ministry. 
at this church through Kairos Prison Ministry and through Celebrate Recovery. And there's a growing number of people in Incarnation who are participating in the Guardian Ad Litem program, providing legal and social advocacy for abused and neglected children. There's a Mercy team developing to uh, help address the tangible and financial needs of people in this community. One of the missional communities is discerning whether or not to um, adopt Stephen's ministry, which is a ministry uh, to those who are struggling with loneliness or grief or depression, and they're, they're considering adopting that as their official group mission. Even today, there's going to be another announcement out of, about how to help women in crisis pregnancy situations at the Phi Center. And about all this, I say, praise the Lord. Like, I celebrate all these ministries, even if, in most cases, they're only in, like, embryonic form right now. Right? And I pray that God would mature and deepen them and add to them as time goes on. Because if we're going to be a healthy body, if we're going to be the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need more than prayer meetings and Bible studies and worship music, as important as those things are. Because true spirituality, true love for God, should always fuel true love for people. These things can't become disconnected for us as they did for the priest and the Levite in this story. That's not true love for God. Jesus is trying to tell him, your way of interpreting this lacks a backbone. True love is expressed in tangible deeds. When Jesus concludes this parable and all the dust settles on his brilliant exchange with the lawyer... He asks one more pointed question. He said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And by this point, this matter that seemed like a matter of great debate has become something that seems very obvious. now. seems a matter of common sense. As Dallas Willard puts it, Jesus' aim in utilizing logic is not to win battles but to achieve understanding or insight in his hearers. And so with fresh understanding and insight, the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, and he says to us, brothers and sisters, you go and do likewise. Amen. Amen.